0: At fifteen, Terry Flynn had the face of an angel and the body of a perfect athlete. He was built on a small scale, but he was utterly beautiful. Walking fully dressed among his friends, he moved with a light, nimble, special grace that set him apart from everyone. Just by watching him walk, you could picture the way he would leap to catch a forward pass, evade any number of potential tacklers, and run alone into the end zone for the winning touchdown as the crowd went wild. And if Terry looked good in clothes, that was nothing compared to his performance every day in the dormitory when he stripped, wrapped a towel around his waist, and made his way down the hall to the showers. He had what is called muscle definition, every bulge and chord and ripple of him was outlined as if by the bite of a classical sculptor's chisel, and he carried himself accordingly. Hi, Terry! The boys would call as he passed, and, hey, Terry! Within a very few days after his arrival at Dorset Academy, Terry Flynn had become the only new boy in three building to be universally called by his first name. In the shower room, which also contained the two toilet stalls and four sinks on that end of the hall, he was splendid. He would make a modest little show, of whisking the towel away from his loins, proving he was hung like a horse. Then he would step into the hot spray and stand there, posing, shifting his weight from one foot to the other, a soaked and glistening statue— The little finger of his right hand had been broken once in a football game and never mended properly. It wouldn't bend, and the delicate stiffness of that finger, which looked at first like an affectation, lent just the right note of insouciance to his personality. Dorset was Terry's fourth prep school, but he was only in the second form. He was still learning to read, and so his classmates were not his contemporaries. In the hours before lunch, he associated with his classmates a cluster of 13-year-olds, each of whom would feel warm and silly all over whenever Terry smiled at him. The rest of his time he gave to his contemporaries. His room was the most popular gathering place in that section of three building and was sometimes honored by the presence of older boys, 16- and 17-year-olds, who would drop in to join the horsing around. Terry didn't talk much, but he usually managed to say the right thing when he did, and he had a memorable laugh—an explosive b <laughs> ha—that could be heard all up and down the hall. Hey, did you hear about Mister Draper and his home brew? Someone said on one of these social occasions, Mister Draper was the chemistry master a frail man so crippled by polio in all four limbs that he could barely walk and barely hold a pencil. Mackenzie had to go over to the lab last night to get a book or some damn thing, and when he turned on the lights, there's Draper on the floor, flat on his back, waving his arms and legs around in the air like some, you know, like some bug trying to turn himself over. So McKenzie gets down and picks him up. He says he only weighs about 65 pounds. And this terrific smell of alcohol hits him. Draper was plastered. (laughs) Terry Flynn said. He'd been sucking up all that homebrew he makes in the back of the lab. You ever seen that big, uh, whatchamacallit, that big tank-like, with the hose kind of thing sticking out of it? And he'd gone and fallen all over himself. Jesus, if Mackenzie hadn't come along, he'd been on his back all night. So Mackenzie puts him into a chair, and old Draper looks like he's going to fall out of that too. And he says, please, get my wife. So Mackenzie takes off to the Draper's house and gets Mrs. Draper. Was she alone? Another voice interrupted. Was she alone or was Frenchie Le in bed with her? (laughs) Terry Flynn said. I don't know. I guess she was alone anyway. The two of them managed to get old Draper home and everything. And then Mrs. Draper says to Mackenzie, she says, This can be just between ourselves, all right? There were a number of English boys at Dorset that year, refugees from the war, and they tended to be favored at faculty teas because of their good manners. One of them was Richard Edward Thomas Lear, who roomed across the hall from Terry Flynn. He stood very straight. He had rich black hair and bright eyes and might have been a handsome boy, except for his mouth, which was as loose and wet as a rooting animal's. "'You must miss your family terribly,' Mrs. Edgar Stone said to him one October afternoon, leaning over to pour more tea into his cup. "'And I do wish you'd tell me more about Tunbridge Wells. Has there been much bombing there? I've just finished reading The White Cliffs, and I found it wonderfully moving, though, of course, my husband says it's not a good book.' Mrs. Stone was the scatterbrained wife of the English master, and this was an important house to visit because the Stones had a sweet, shy daughter of fifteen named Edith. She was seldom home, but there was always a chance. Besides, Mrs. Stone herself wasn't half bad. When she leaned over with the teapot that way, if you were lucky, you could get a nice view of ample, creamy breast all the way down to the nip. I hope Cambridge Wells isn't much changed, Mrs. Stone, Richard Edward Thomas Lear said. I shall want to see it again as I remembered it. Then, knocking back his tea, he stood up. I'm afraid I must go now. Thanks ever so much. And when Mrs. Stone turned away to call her husband from the study, Lear reached out one hand, gathered up six expensive chocolate-dipped cookies and thrust them into the side pocket of his dorset blazer. Ah uh, good having you, uh Leah, doctor Stone said, blinking in the doorway. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, sir, smiling there with one hand sunk in his blazer pocket. He was the picture of a courteous departing guest. <laughs> Thank you both again. He ate all the cookies in rapid succession as he walked out across the quadrangle toward Three Building. Upstairs in his room, feeling a little queasy from the surfeit, he got undressed for a shower. Lear had nothing to fear from the scrutiny of the shower room. He might not be as spectacular as Terry Flynn, but he was all right. His prick was adequate, and he had powerful, admirably hairy legs— "'Another thing, he knew better than anyone "'how to snap a wet towel against the buttocks of other bathers. "'Sometimes, though, and particularly at this hour of the day, "'an unaccountable melancholy settled on him.' He wanted to punch and wrestle and shout. Those were the only activities that could make him feel fit again. With his shower completed and his clothes changed for dinner, he went out into the hall and found Art Jennings intently flicking specks of lint off his black jacket. Jennings was a hulking, amiable, nearsighted boy. He was bigger than Lear, but that would only make it more stimulating. My God, look! Lear cried in a shocked voice, pointing dramatically toward the shower room, and when Jennings turned to look, he stepped in and punched him with all his strength on the upper arm. Ow! Son of a bitch! Jennings tried to punch him back, but missed. Lear had stepped out of range and stood smiling there, his wet mouth glistening. And then... They were all over each other, locked in a series of clumsy wrestling holes as they swayed and fell into Jennings' room. First they were on the floor where they knocked over the chair and Jennings' glasses fell off. Then they were on the bed where one of Lear's flailing feet scraped a long rip in the sailing chart Jennings had used to decorate his wall. Six or eight other boys passed the open door and saw them without much interest. In the end, it was Terry Flynn who broke them up as casually as if he were separating two puppies. Come on, guys, he said. That was the three-minute bell. Gasping for breath, rubbing their sore limbs and necks and ribs, they got dizzily to their feet. Their evening clothes were ruined. One shoulder seam of Lear's jacket was torn out. Both their shirts were gray with sweat, and their starched collars and bow ties had come absurdly apart. Lying silver on Jennings' lapel was a long, ropey strand of Lear's spit. Get you the next time, you bastard, Jennings said. You and who else? Lear inquired. He felt marvelous, and Jennings, squinting and fitting his glasses back into place, looked as if he felt good, too. In his second year as French master at Dorset Academy, Jean-Paul Laprade had established an uneasy truce with the place. He would much rather have been back in New York, making ends meet as a translator and occasionally doing what he called a spot of journalism. He had been able to stay in bed till noon every day in New York, often with a lively girl, but a man had to change with changing times.